Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer your questions live during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and many other major publications. This morning, he was on CNBC. And uh, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Well, hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my co-host, Bala Ashar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. More importantly, one of the top CIO followers, top CMO followers uh, on Twitter. And of course, now a rock star in India after a fabulous keynote presentation in NASCOM. So very, very cool. But hey, we're here not to talk about ourselves. We're here to get some cool insights from interesting guests, uh, CEOs, executives, of course, and thought leaders. But who do we have today? Fresh off a wonderful book launch. Yes, talk about a rock star. Uh, it's our privilege to have Rhonda Viteri, president, global change transformation agent, and now a two-time author on our show. Rhonda is a seasoned C-suite technology executive who has worked across industries in global technology. A change agent for digital transformation, she has led way for growth and more than 23 mergers and acquisitions across various companies. She has served as a chief information officer, chief technology officer at companies like Estee Lauder, Santander Bank, AIG, HP, Barclays, JP Morgan Chase, and many Fortune 250 companies. She's lived and worked internationally in New York, Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Mumbai, really uh, over the entire geography at times managing teams of more than 20,000 people. She's a keynote speaker. She has shared her wisdom at the World Economic Forum, Women in Technology Connect Conference, Microsoft Global CIO Summit, Dell EMC World, and many other incredible prestigious locations. She's the author of a new book, Grit and Grind, 10 Principles for Living in an Extraordinary Life, which is Wanda's second book. Uh, when she's not writing, inspiring executives growing businesses, uh, she competes in over 70 athletic events, including triathlons, half marathons, Ironman 70 mile triathlons. She recently ran 55 miles in the Serengeti as part of a girls and women empowerment fundraiser. I have such imposter syndrome reading Rhonda's bio. <laughs> you, can, you can follow Rhonda on Twitter at R-H-O-N-D-A-V-E-T-E-R-E-H. Welcome Rhonda to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Vala. Wow, thank you for that introduction from you. It's a You've pleasure done to be so here. Much. <laughs> I tried. This is amazing. We only have slackers. We only have slackers on our show, apparently. <laughs> so, but hey, hey, you're fresh off your book, like your pre-book launch last night. It's wonderful. Um, what made you decide to write the book? What inspired oh. you to get there? Thanks, Ray. I'm fresh off it. Haven't slept and um, I feel great. What inspired me to do it was to actually spread my soul around the world and show the 10 principles of just all of us grind it out every single day and what it takes to get into the details, be successful. And when you have that pit in your belly, like we all do, no matter what position you're in, you know, you're pushing through it and you need to just push through and get to know the details. And I had a lot of folks ask me about when my next book was, you know, across 
the world and they actually inspired me. The world actually inspired me um, to share stories about how you get through the hard stuff. So the world actually inspired me and I wanted to share finally the stories of what I've learned throughout the years um, globally around the world. That's amazing. Now you can't reach the levels that you have in terms of being an incredible executive at some of the biggest and best companies and brands in the world. So there's no question that you need grit and grind to reach the heights that you have reached. But as I look through the book, I realized that this is insight that's not specific to business leaders. You could be at, in any capacity, in any title, at any uh, period throughout your journey uh, to benefit from your book. So what do you hope people take away from grit and grind? Oh, Valis, thank you for picking it up. That's so impactful because I wanted to make sure this book was no matter what age group you're in, someone can take away, no matter if you're an executive, someone working, you know, a mom or father, a student growing up, that you could take away a principle. And it's very, very important in life. I think that folks read these principles, whether it's being on time, simple things, being adaptable, receptible, listening. We're in a world of technology now that I think just basic principles, no matter where you are in life, you need a foundation and just a reminder that they take away on what it takes because we grind it out daily, no matter what part of your life you're in. You don't have to be just an executive. You could be an athlete. You could be um, a teacher. We all have issues that we work through in the workplace or personally and professionally. So I hope they take away uh, words of wisdom on what it takes because it wasn't, thank you for picking it up, it wasn't written from what it takes to get to be where you are. It's what it takes to get through life. Right. It is. And you actually write something really interesting here um, in your book. It really says you've got to provide the willingness to dive in. Right. And, and that's a very, very profound statement because people don't always have that willingness to dive in because they don't know what to expect. Right. And, and, and I guess that's the, the is that the framework helps you figure it out to get through it? Yes. Dive in, ask the questions, don't assume anything and just get to the level of the ones and zeros for us engineer and technology folks listening in to the details on the end to end on what you're trying to do and the problem you're trying to solve in business outcome. What are you trying to get through in life and business and just get dive in and don't, don't have any expectations. No, you, you mentioned in your book that there's two sides of you, uh, the beast mode side and the calmer side. Can you talk a little bit about that juxtaposition of being calm, mindful, but also recognizing there are times when grit and grind means you have to have that self-confidence and that bold mindset that said, I'm just going to dive in and I'm going to crush it and I'm going to achieve all the goals that I've, that I've, that I've you know, set my mind to. Bala, thanks for picking it up. Yes, I, I learned this over the years. I have two sides of the brain like we all do, but it's a sensible one and non-one. It's the go get it done, thrillist, adventurous, dive in, very head down, and then the one that steps back to analyze and the more friendly one. So I go between and I, I learned that later in life, and I think it's about it's a balance. And um, I noticed that in situations, whether it's crisis mode, managing through different situations that you really have to take a pause, be calm as a leader, 
be sensible, but also make sure you have that, when you have that fire in your belly, that's when I keep digging, Val. I know I'm on to something when you feel that gut and grinding it out. And when you run 55 miles in a desert, <laughs> you have to have both those mindsets for sure. <laughs> it is. And, and, and that's a great segue into what you talk about, you know, this whole notion of corporate athletes, right? I mean, people could work themselves to death, but they might not find that balance, right? And that's something I've noticed um, from people that work for you and people that have you know, worked with you. It's uh, one of those things that you keep emphasizing this need for corporate athletes and, and helping people to train to that. Explain to people what corporate athletes are and how, how do people get there? Oh, thanks. I am so passionate about being a corporate athlete. What I mean by that is making sure I'm a big proponent. If you can't take care of yourself healthy, you can't manage a team, you can't manage a family, you can't manage your friends. And it's all about taking care of yourself to take care of others. So if I'm not leading by example, I call it a corporate athlete. If I'm not up, people know in the workplace. If you want to have a meeting in India, you'll find me on the treadmill at 4 a.m. I've had vendors and partners run side by side with me, executives, and actually do business on the treadmill. And a corporate athlete means you're taking care of your wellness, you're being healthy, and you're on, here's the key, the cadence. You're on the cadence to keep yourself going, which means you keep that fire going, you get your nutrition, you burn. You don't, it doesn't mean you work 24 by 7 and you just burn out. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and folks need to understand what their outlet is very important or you will burn out so I, yeah, I know we see so many people that. burn out so yes and, and they burn out because they they they're in sprint mode right they're not in marathon mode right but but there's that balance between when you sprint and when you do the marathon like when you make the call well oh great play. when you make the flag on the play you, you tell the team <laughs> we actually need three months of sprint mode and i will tell them Tell your spouses, I'll make phone calls. We're going into sprint mode. That means missing an action. We're doing it. It's going to take, you know, a long days. We'll work out, but guess what? We're going to do some agile stuff and then we'll calm down the cadence. Wow. So you remember to slow them down. You remember to slow them down. Otherwise they do burn out. So that's they very, very important. I see in the hospital. Wow. Oh no. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. I'm always in search of inspiration on, on Twitter. And uh, Paulo, Paulo, who uh, author of Alchemist, recently tweeted, uh, life was always a matter of waiting for the right moment to act. And in your book, you talk about the importance of being on time. I suspect the right time to act assumes that you're on time, you're ready to get in the game and score. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of being on time and sometimes you know that means being early sometimes it means staying longer but just being in position to be in position to to, to score oh absolutely well i think it's one of the things in society where you know we've lost the respect of people's time and being on time to me means 15 minutes early um not two minutes late I think that's, and I love how you run your show here. It's on time. You get on here early. You know when you're going off the gun. And people lose sight of that. They disrespect your time. And again, it's about the cadence. And if you have that as a leader, your team will follow that. They know you're going to get decisions done very, very quickly. And people respect that when you respect their time. 
Yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, you, you, I mean, that's the only thing you have, right? That's the one commodity you can't replace, right? It, it's so important when you think about, you know, where time fits in this. So now I got a question here really about, uh, you know, um, global culture, right? You're working in different teams. You've been around the world. Uh, what are some things that are common values and what are things that you have to work around because it's, you know, definitely culturally different as I sit here in Singapore. <laughs> so. Exactly. In Singapore, different than Hong Kong, even though you're in Asia, as far as what you need to do culturally, not chewing gum over there. I mean, some folks don't even know that, right? From a cultural oh my God. perspective. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> That's so. not allowed. And I just the little things that you need to be aware of how to hold your business card, look down in Asia and Hong Kong, read it. You often have a different language on the back. If you don't, you should. If you're working out of Asia or have a global team, take notes on the card. There's simple things in Asia that make a, a difference. And then the speed, the speed over in different countries. Um, and then I always like the countries, um, you know, as far as India, India never stops. I love India. I love India. I love it there, Valif. Um, The food, people like to eat, um, you know, eat and um, keep working there keep working yeah absolutely absolutely uh for, for those of us uh you know for folks that are watching the show that are not familiar with the book and are not familiar with the 10 principles be prepared show respect be on time listen first be honest be accountable communicate openly recognize your team display managerial courage know your metrics invest in mentorship so actually 11 sections in 11 chapters that speak to the 10 principles how did you come up with the 10 principles did you have to have spirited discussions with yourself and your team and your mentors to boil it down to 10? And is there, now that you're in the book launch, are you debating whether they should have been in 11th or 12th? Which one of these resonate with you and how you come up with them? You know, well, it's interesting. Um, these principles have been with me for a, about a dozen years and I've always written them down what I believed in. And then recently, about seven years ago, Folks started putting them on all walls of office in Krakow, in Poland, in Singapore, in India. And I would get these pictures, Rhonda, here are your principles on our wall. And I would just like the, the David Letterman top 10 list, and I'm dating myself. One, two, you know, one through awesome. 10, here's what you need to do. Awesome. Awesome. And I came up with this, but not the narrative. And I didn't realize at the time what it meant. And it was, you know, what it takes to be on time. It was actually my leadership principles when I went to every company. Here's what I expect. Here's what I ex you could expect of me as a leader. And here's how I lead. So um, I just, I just really, really came up with it on what I expect and to tell the team. And then it came global, more so on office walls. And I said, you know what, I got I have to write a book now on this. Very cool. That's awesome. So you were really inspired by the folks that you mentored and sponsored and, and learned from. So that's, that's really cool. So th there must be a massive sense of pride for whoever's worked with you in the past to see those pictures on the walls now into a best-selling book. It is. Thank you, Val. I'm getting messages. It just, we just had the pre-launch last night. It goes, it's on Amazon. It goes live March the 5th, which is my mom's birthday. So it's, it's not because it's, March Women's Month. It's actually because um, my mom is ill and it's her birthday, so it's dedicated to her. That's a special date, and I, I'm inspired by everyone. I'm getting these messages from Olympic athletes to people I've worked with around the world. 
saying how it's been inspiring to them and how they've helped along the journey. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to share this, my soul with the world and, and hope to inspire someone. Very cool. Well, you've already inspired Ray and I, so two down. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the book launch, well, you guys the pre-launch. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, tell us about the book launch, the pre-launch that you had uh, in New York last night. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the uh, secrets revealed or anything, any surprises that went on. So. Oh, Ray. Oh, my goodness. We wish we could have beamed you and Vala there. Um, any surprises? The Columbus Citizens Club. You know, we had a, we had all the countries represented. Surprise. Which was enlightening. For everyone um, from military to people that work in our industries, all countries are presented. It was a diverse crowd. People were surprised at how diverse it was. And I was so happy to see that. That's everyone amazing. showed up. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> no, you got diverse a very good group. You got a very, very group there. We saw Jay Farrow in the background and Heather Willems and other folks uh, in those pictures. So very, very wonderful. Uh, I got one last question on my end, just from going through the book, and it's really the, the part about being unstuck, right? I think that's the part that's so hard, especially when you're working on, you know, these very long projects, and then suddenly something bad happens, right? And this question, like, how you get yourself out of it, uh, those principles around being unstuck, um, how, what's a good way to do it? Because it sounds like it's a little bit of I mean, from what, you, what you've described, it's a little bit about there's a methodology, but there's also some things that are just instincts that come into play. So. Yeah, so just that when you think you're stuck in the quicksand, you use your gut to go, oh my gosh, it's really happening. But you recognize it too to say, this is going to be hard. What is it going to take? And a lot of people don't know what that is, right? It'd be, or they don't even realize what they're stuck and they're stagnant. And what is it going to take to push? And what do you want differently? I think it's very important to recognize. Sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and it's not helping or changing, but there's no one there to help them say, hey, look, it's not improving. Uh, it may be getting worse, uh, you know, um, and, and maybe you can try something different, so. Right, and try coming from a different angle and, and, and just rallying around the problem. Get help, but you know, it's powerful to say I need help. So, that's the grind part. So that is the well, this is wonderful. <laughs> when, you, when, you run, when you run 55 miles, um, which it would take a lifetime for me to do, uh, uh, there has to be a balance of not, not just physical toughness, but mental toughness. We, we, we've heard athletes hitting a, the proverbial wall during a, during a long distance run. And, you know, the pictures of you running, there's elephants and lions and giraffes around you. So it's not <laughs> ideal conditions on a you know, flat surface road. So you're going into really incredible harsh places and you're running, you know, uh, two marathons. Does that help you when it comes to having the mental toughness to be a CTO at Estee Lauder or CIO at Santander? Does the physical cadence and discipline and ability to develop anticipatory muscles, knowing you have to go through grit and grind to finish a race, does that transfer to when you're in the office and you have to lead a digital transformation with all these new emerging technologies, talent skills gap, corporate culture, and all these other things that you have to deal with as, as a senior executive. It helps out tremendously, Vala. And if I did not do it, I would honestly say as a leader, I would not be bringing my best to work wow. because I'm conditioned in my mind to keep going and have that cadence and push through those 
running through 55 miles with a pride of 16 lines coming at you in dangerous situations with armed guards around you that when you have a crisis at work and you're having a real life experience, you can balance in your head, you can do it because yeah. you have done something worse. Right, right. That's, That's nothing. Yeah, it's really nothing. <laughs> so, all right, well, we're here with Rhonda Viteri, President, Global Change Transformation Agent, author. You can follow her at Rhonda, R-H-O-N-D-A, Viteri, V-E-T-E-R-E-H, in her new book, pre-order it from Amazon while you can. Comes out March 5th, Grit and Grind, available anywhere uh, where books are sold. So thanks a lot for being on the show. So. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. You both inspire me so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Wow. Wow. You're, uh... hey, I'm, I'm inspired to go run maybe 5K, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I might just join you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you and I need to, uh, you know. Yeah, or, uh, I think we can get some gourmet meals instead. Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking freshly or run 55 miles. All right. I know what I'm going to do. All right. So. Who do we have next here? It's on the desert as well. It's not just. <laughs> we have, uh, it's, it's a pleasure for us to have Mayor Gupta. He's the chief marketing officer at Freshly, where he's leading a team of marketeers to make Freshly an iconic brand and drive breakthrough growth, inspiring every household in America to bring positive change in their lives by eating healthier each week. We want Freshly at Disrupt TV. Ray, you and I have to talk to Aubrey about that. Prior to that, Mayor was a global vice president for growth and marketing at Spotify. He drove growth for Spotify across multi-active users, daily active users, paid subscriptions, all the key metrics that led to a stellar IPO and a fantastic story in terms of, of technology companies successfully delighting their customers. He was the first ever global chief marketing technologist at Kimberly Clark, one of the largest global consumer packaged good companies in the world. He was recognized as one of the 40 under 40 leading marketeers in the industry by brand innovators and also received the CMO uh, award uh, from CMO Club. Harvard Business Review Economist profiled him as the model chief marketing technologist and now CMO. He's a fantastic follow on Twitter at Inspire Martech, I-N-S-P-I-R-E-M-A-R-T-E-C-H. Welcome back, Mayor, to this one. Thanks, Wala. That's one of the best intros I've ever had in my life, I think. Oh, we got to add BT150, too. He's a BT150 winner. You're on a 20-minute show, and this guy's done so much, I could just read his bio for the entire 20 minutes. So, <laughs> so hey, let's talk about marketing. I mean, your favorite subject, blueprint for modern marketing, growth versus brand, demand gen versus, you know, awareness. Uh, is it really either or? Because it feels like it all the time. And, and when you talk to marketers, they're either like one, they seem to be one dimensional about this, which is like crazy. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating is over the last uh, few months, I've had such a pleasure to talk to so many founders at different stages. Uh, and you also look at incredible brands like Spotify and Airbnb go, go through their own trajectory. But I think you're right. The, um, I see a lot of companies oscillate back and forth between over-indexing on one side or the other based on how their last 12 to 18 months have been. You know, but as, a, as a, uh, more, one of the most unfit marketers to be sitting in marketing, because uh, I'm, I'm traditionally an engineer and a technologist, you know, I, I simplify the world of marketing in my head in terms of holding it accountable for three very simple outcomes. You, know, you, you grow the brand, you grow the user base, and you grow the user value. 
There's nothing else that marketing should be held accountable for. And, and ultimately, it's a Venn diagram where magic happens at that intersection because, um, you know, it's almost impossible to, to take a company from one to N, you know, a multi-billion dollar, a few hundred million user base without the power of any one of these three core, three core verticals. Um, having said that, I do believe that based on where you are in your journey as, a, as an organization, you may over-index on one versus the other up until you realize that the three have to hum together. So if you're a startup in your zero to one stage or your pre-product market fit, um, I think your brand is your core product. You know? And as you start to optimize it, your brand is your core user base and you get to that zero to one stage. But then it's also very important to realize that the only way you get from one to N is when you now think beyond the functional benefit of what you offer. You have to not emotionally, humanistically, and culturally think about the value that you bring. Otherwise, in a world where the consumers have so much choice, so much control, so much power, mm -hmm. owning loyalty is extremely challenging unless you built that emotional and deep-rooted, authentic connection with that user base. When I read your, your points of view and thesis, it's always accompanied by data, it's always accompanied by graphics and visual aids, where you have this masterful skill of taking complex topics and breaking them down to drawings where it just makes sense. So I can see your engineering background uh, uh, that you lean into as you masterfully run marketing. So can you talk about this? How did you first of all get from an engineer to a marketeer? Who convinced you or, or was it just a, 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 a self-realization? And then the role of data and science and technology, which you clearly bring with you. And, and I know it's not art or science, it's both, um, but you have both. So tell us about your journey. Yeah, so, you know, in, in all honesty, the, the journey has been full of accidents and, and just <laughs> happened to be at a place where it made sense. And I had no freaking clue, to be quite honest, for the first so many years, where the hell I was going. And as, as a young guy, and you've been talking so much about India today, and as a guy who grew up in India and, you know, in a competitive world like that, where opportunities are far less than the number of people aiming for them, you just, you just learn how to keep fighting every single day. And I had no clue where I was going, but I think my transition came, there were two big pivotal points in my career, I feel. One was as a pure technologist in the first quite a few years, I was, um, you know, I wore many hats of the Unix admin. I, I was a Java architect. Um, I'd been a systems admin. But at one point, I used to be a SAP Nitro. We acquired an ad tech uh, platform called PGI in, in Miami. And I was asked to become the product lead for that. And that was my transition, unknowingly, from pure technology to building technology platforms and products for the world of marketing and advertising. And I literally started there to the point where I would be sitting um, you know, with a group of experts who have built this massive product and working for clients like Citibank and Royal Bank of Canada and so on. And I would go back to my hotel and go to Wikipedia, but that was the only place that would have a definition and understanding in English because everything else was so complex from understanding what is advertising to what is a pixel, what is a target, what is a munch. But that's where it kind of was the first pivotal point. And from there on, you know, being at a pretty incredible setup within Sapient, I wore many hats, ran production studios, became you know, uh, a marketing strategist for some leading CPG clients too. Ultimately, when I had the opportunity after 12 years to join Kimberly Clark as a chief marketing technologist, 
I think that really opened my eyes and really got me in the center of marketing, coming from digital and marketing tech, which was still a very new thing back then. It would have been amazing to talk to Ron about it, being a CIO, but everybody was talking about how the roles of the CMO and the CIO were converging. And again, I just happened to be at that intersection on the other side of the fence and, and just absorbed that challenge and that turmoil, to be quite honest. I was on the receiving end of that, but I enjoyed and learned tremendously from incredible leaders. And uh, I asked myself a question during that journey. And if I wanted to go to continue to go down the path of being a product guy and want to be a chief product officer, or do I believe that I have a chance of being a marketer um, despite knowing that I've never studied marketing and I never had that emotional and cultural side of marketing. And one day I realized that I think I'll be a, I'll be a good on an average product person. Um, I could suck at marketing, but if I had to put my bet, I'll put it there because there are not many people who are non-marketers living in the world of marketing. And then from there on, I, I've just been trying to learn from leaders like yourself and many others that I've worked with on a day-to-day basis. And I've just been absorbing um, the craft of marketing. And to your second point, I honestly and very deeply believe that marketing is actually not even art and science. It's art in science and science in art. It is so intertwined that you can't isolate it to the point where I don't think marketing is data-driven. Marketing has to be data-inspired. So the last few years, especially at Spotify, what I try to continue to learn every day was how do I move away from this over-indexing on data and tech in the world of marketing to figuring out how do you converge the two where you can't isolate it anymore? Mm-hmm. And, and that's where, on the contrary now, this is weird coming from a data and a science and engineering guy, is I'm challenging you to not limit their creativity, you know, their emotional right. and serendipitous and irrational beliefs just because data is saying something. You use data to get inspired, but at the end, iconic brands are emotional. They are cultural. And sometimes if you leverage and get governed by data and science, you make very mechanical and functional brands that are very easy to move away from. Ray, yeah, I, I want us to make some, get some breaking news here. Um, we've known Mayor for a number of years. I can't imagine you sucking at anything, but is there something that you're awful at? I'll just get some breaking news. <laughs> no, we can skip that. But I've known you for many years. You're, you're, you're exceptional in everything you've, you've done. So kudos to you. Go ahead, Ray. <laughs> no, no, I was thinking, about, I, was, I was thinking like planning corporation, or what was it, like planning group international? Oh my God, that was 2006, way, way back there. Oh, yeah. these big acquisitions. So, but that was interesting, right? Because at that time, right, that was where data and science and technology and creativity were all coming together. I mean, you basically rode that first wave of, of uh, where marketing is now today, uh, where it's kind of transitioned. And so your point about data inspired uh, and, and really kind of paraphrasing here, but really being limitless, right, in terms of your creativity and thinking, uh, that, that's one of the big things that we're seeing. So what happens when we're in this impact, when we get AI, right, thrown into marketing? Does it make us more autonomous? Like, do we get smarter with it? Do the insights help us be more creative or is it hurting us? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I knew you were gonna go there because you you had to. Um, (laughs) I think that in the world of art and science and science and art, um, the value of 
human interaction and human empathy will never go away, right? And, um, and we've seen that in brands today, the brands that backfire because what they reflect, what they express does not match who they really are. You know, they're not authentic and that comes out very well. So that will never go away, you know, for you to be authentic, for you to be brave and for, for your, your expression, your brand to reflect your inner self as, a, as an organization. Having said that, there are areas where, you know, there's a lot that we are still doing, doing manually, you know, where the consumer is raising the bar every single day. Like we are all of us now assume and expect, you know, when you're ordering something on Amazon through voice for Amazon to know what you did in the last 50 times and for it to recommend what you're lacking, what you're missing, you know, um, for financial institutions to tell you you're about to run payroll you know, but the amount of balance you have a week before is going to lead into challenges. So hence, here are three different paths for you to figure out what you should be doing, you know, getting you ready for that. So I feel there is so much opportunity to continue to add very simple human value using science. And that's where I feel AI is so huge because we are in this breadcrumbs of data signals. There is so much, there is so much left behind and there is so many touch points that it is humanly impossible for somebody to connect those pieces and say, Ray, this is what I believe you ought to be doing. This is what I believe will make sense for you. And I think that's where it is not AI versus human empathy and the value of brands. It is how we figured out the both amplify each other and, and ultimately to meet a very simple human need on a day-to-day -day basis. So now you're the CMO and uh, your responsibility uh, has expanded beyond technologists and there is, uh, there's a stakeholder uh, uh, expectation that, that you potentially have to lead or be the center of delivering exceptional customer experience. And that's a, that's, that's a team sport that requires sales, that requires service, that requires R&D. How, what, what advice do you have or what's your guiding principle as a CMO freshly in terms of collaborating more with the different lines of business in order to have this team approach of delighting a customer? You know, one of the things that I focus a lot on is, is learn from the lessons and the mistakes I've made, but also learn from mistakes that others have made that I've seen happen. And, um, and I think that's just something I've, had the privilege to do so and one of my biggest lessons learned um we're having worked in fortune 100 and, and growth companies is is there's only one fundamental problem that keeps that holds an organization back compared to the one that continues to run forward and that is the ones that run forward are the ones that are able to break down silos and fragments in an organization because customer experiences are a reflection of how you organize and how you operate Everything else is mechanic. Yes, and, and I'm a firm believer of that. And, and that's one of my big objectives within the marketing organization. How do you ensure you're not making silos? How the left hand and the right hand talk? And that's where some of the engineering and the systems thinking is so relevant in the world today, uh, both at the business level as well as within the world of marketing, because every business model and marketing included is complex, not complicated. When you create silos and fragments, you now suddenly make it complicated. And, and I think that's where the way I think about institutionalizing that is when you hold people accountable for common outcomes. Because otherwise, inherently, if you hold them accountable for different outcomes and different success metrics, 
it's inevitable that their behavior and the actions are sometimes going to be contradictory. So as long as you rally teams around single outcomes and there are some best practices and some great ways to do it, cross-functional squads and tribes, where it doesn't matter where you come from, you're a technologist, a data person, a marketer, ultimately when you come and sit in that squad every, or a pod every single day, your mission is to hit that objective and those set of outcomes. And that is how you glue all these distinct vertical functions together to hit one core area. So hey, as you do that, are you seeing a shift from short-term marketing thinking to more metrics that talk about sustainable growth? Because traditionally it's been like, oh, look, we got millions of impressions. Uh, great. <laughs> what are we, we going to do with that? Right? The things that actually help people see how we're going from MQLs to SQLs to funnels to things that actually <laughs> have some sense of ontology, at least, I hope. 100%. And, and um, I think market is always, marketing is always on today. And what I mean by that is the traditional model of start and end date of a campaign just does not exist because the mom who's, you know, who's making those tough choices and making those buying decisions isn't doing it waiting for your Christmas carol campaign. She's doing it at 10 p.m. and the kids have gone to sleep. And that's the only time she has to sit on the phone and figure out what is my next week going to look like, which means that it's such a pull mindset that when you, if you are not there in her moment, not your moment, if you're not there, you've lost her, you know, as a brand. So, um, I think that's, that's the bar that has been set up for marketers where you have to be always on in your mindset to listen, to understand, engage, and then hopefully converse with that audience. And that's why it's challenging because it's not just marketing. It is data and science and technology because I've seen situations where you have the insight, if you're lucky, but I've seen situations where you transform data into insight. You also know what to tell to that person to bring them back or prevent them from churning. You just don't have the tech pipes to reach that person right at that moment. And you're far too late because you're waiting for that campaign and that person already moved on because she has so much access and so much choice. So I feel marketing is absolutely always on. It is absolutely opposite of what it used to be, you know, even eight, nine years back. Um, and it, it, is, it is rhythmic, you know, it's, it's applying, it is a system, it's that engine that is running every single moment. Wow, that campaign velocity is one of the things that people are, are struggling with, right? Content acceleration, campaign velocity, and then uh, precision targeting. So, and, and one point that I've learned through my through my career is I think there's so many functions, primarily marketing, that focus on the output, focus so much on doing things. To your point, on impressions or likes or chatter, they're not holding themselves accountable for outcomes. And it's this mindset shift from outputs to outcome that is fundamental to the world of marketing, especially at a time when every CEO is holding the CMO or marketing accountable to make business impact. And that is where that whole, the first question on brand versus growth. I challenge marketing to demonstrate how a strong brand amplifies your growth, brings your cap down, you know, creates new demand that your performance marketing and your growth engine can go and capture. But it's your is when we are unable to connect those pieces, when obvious questions pop up on why are we investing, you know, on building that brand because we're not able to demonstrate the incrementality of a very strong cultural brand. I want to thank Mayor because this weekend I'm gonna rewatch this segment and I'll have about 50 to 70 tweets 
about <laughs> you're so tweet worthy it's amazing <laughs> my last question to you I'm, I'm, a best year. <laughs> I'm a ceo of one of the 10,000 martech companies out there and i was fortunate enough to land a 30 minute uh meeting with you what do i need to tell you in 30 minutes what do you look for what do you listen to when platform company solution providers come to you and say we want to be freshly strategic partner yeah. What do they need to say to you for you to uh, vet them as a potential uh, company that you want to do business with? Yeah, I mean, specific, um, the question is specifically around marketing tech and platform and tech companies, um, which are, there are gazillions out there, especially if we take a lens now and look at Scott Brinker's uh, Martech <laughs> lens. Right? Super it's infographic, yeah. Bro, <laughs> I, would, I would say more now, having been on the production side and now on the consumption side, I would say that my one request and advice would be, don't think about technology and platforms and product for the sake of technology platform and product. Think about the application of the technology to ultimately deliver an outcome. And I feel that that lacks on two sides, that lacks on the product side and that lacks on the series of companies and marketing technologies who are applying it. I think we're doing a lot of things and focusing less on the application to move the needle. That's awesome. Well, we are talking about marketing, marketing tech, the future of marketing, marketing and science, everything inspired in marketing. You can follow Mayor Gupta, CMO at Freshly, on Twitter at Inspire Martech, as we go from brands to movements. And uh, I think that's really where we are today. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show and thanks for sharing your insights. Thank you, my friend. You're terrific. Thank you both. This is fun to be here. Thank you. Well, All right. Wow. So pro marketer here. Our favorite time of the week, right? Uh, extraordinary marketeer um, and, a, and a true thought leader when it comes to just digital transformation as a whole beyond just marketing. And uh, so this is our final segment uh, of the day and where it's privileged for us to have Nicole France, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation uh, research. Uh, Nicole uh, focuses on digital marketing, sales effectiveness, customer experience, so great uh, way to end the show based on our first two guests. Uh, Nicole's research examines the interrelationship between sales, marketing, and customer engagement and how to make it work effectively. Uh, Nicole evaluates tools as well as the principles and practices that generate the best results. Mayor kept talking about outcomes, outcomes. So again, this is a fantastic uh, way for us to complete our, our thought process around all of these outcome-oriented practices. With over 20 years of experience as both technology analyst and marketeer, Nicole has a unique perspective on both the trends and uh, the pract practicalities of effective customer engagement. You can follow Nicole on Twitter at LN France, L-N-F-R-A-N-C-E. Welcome back, Nicole, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Bala. It's nice to be here. I'm privileged to be back with such a, an illustrious group of guests today as well. Always tough to follow either of them. Yeah, this, is, this is our Grand Slam spot where you're going to help us put the, the well, you're, well, you're, To borrow the running analogy, I've got the, I've got the baton, right? I'm going to run the, the anchor position that's here. Right. That's right. There we go. Exactly. You are taking anchor. You're fourth on the relay. We are all counting. No, just kidding. Hey, so, 
we've been talking off, right? You've been building your research agenda. You've been thinking about what those big ideas and big issues are. And one of the things that you've been spending a lot of time expressing, developing, and getting other people to understand is this thing called customer understanding. So let's talk a little about that in the context of what that means for companies and what that means in terms of different types of experience models. Sure. Well, I, you know, in that sense, it can't be a better position than the one I'm in now having followed the conversation with Meyer and with Rhonda both because I think what both of them really did an excellent job of conveying and really uh, driving home is this idea that really it's those human relationships, it's the people that matter so much. So it doesn't really matter how you're doing business, it doesn't really matter uh, what channels you use, whether that's how you engage your customers or how you sell with them or how you communicate with them. Fundamentally, this is all about people, right? And we can use a huge amount of technology to improve the way we're doing things. But if we aren't focused on the people on either end of that relationship, then we, we really won't be around for too long as businesses. And I, I think that's particularly true in today's climate where everybody's concerned about disruptive new competitors. One thing is for certain, if you are not really good at understanding and anticipating your customer's needs and using that to shape how you Go to business, go to market, or do business. Someone else will come and do it for you. And what what they'll probably do is pick off the most profitable parts of your business first, which is a pretty uncomfortable place to be, and frankly, a pretty difficult one to come back from as well. So, as Ray, you know well, this is a subject that I am incredibly passionate about. I was doing a little cheer uh, as Meyer was talking about the importance of bringing the data together with the creative side, because I think. You know, fundamentally, we have, as a result of all of these fantastic technologies, had an ability to see some of these things in a digital sense that we couldn't really see or track before, right? It's a little bit like when germ theory came out and Lister and Pasteur made everybody really aware of all this invisible stuff that was all around us every day that suddenly we needed to be really concerned about because, you know, it influenced things like our health, right? So we have all this from a marketing and a, and a customer engagement and customer experience standpoint, the problem is that we've gone a little bit too hard over, I would argue, as a, as a sort of um, business group, um, at looking at the data from a quantitative standpoint. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about human relationships, you fundamentally have to understand that qualitative insight as well. You know, not just what your customers are doing, not just what their behaviors are, but why are they doing those things? That's amazing. Understanding the why. I think it was Rachel Bossman who said money is the currency for uh, transactions. Trust is the currency for engagement. And you know, the more you understand the customer, hopefully over time, you, the more you have an opportunity to establish trust, perhaps be viewed as, a, as an advisor and someone that's there to co-create value. Um, and in the first segment, we had a CIO CTO talk about you know, importance of leadership principles in order to effectively run a business and effectively, I'm assuming, the in the context of understanding your stakeholders, including customer. And then we had a CMO come and talk about outcome-oriented marketing and art in science and science in art, all uh, uh, with aimed at improving uh, and, and delivering value to your, to your base, as you mentioned, as one of the three pillars. Um, who is championing modern experience management in companies that are leading in terms of digital transformation? Is it the CMO? Is it the CTO? Is it the CIO? Do we still hire chief digital officers? Or is it ultimately the CEO because customer experience is now a boardroom topic? 
is there a particular CXO that, that based on your clientele that seems to be on the forefront of really understanding and championing customers? Well, you know, it's actually a really difficult question to answer, I think, Bala. And I think the reason it's difficult to answer is because we're at this moment in the evolution of business and, and of these capabilities and how they allow us to operate. That means there's a huge amount of flux going on within a whole lot of organizations. So it depends on the type of company. It depends on the sector. It depends a little bit on uh, the, the sort of longevity of the company as well. Although I'd argue that sometimes the mindset matters a lot more than the actual age of the company as well. Um, so I, we see a whole lot of diversity here. In some cases, it absolutely is the CEO who is saying, you know, this is the thing that we need to be most focused on. And, and we know actually from Constellation's most recent uh, digital transformation survey, this is in fact the great big thing that CEOs who lead digital transformation are really, really concerned with. Their number one objective is customers, understanding customers and engaging them more effectively. So in many cases, that is where this is coming from the top. Um, it depends though, because you have things like chief revenue officers that are an increasingly predominant title. You have customer success leaders, right? Again, a different title coming from a slightly different uh, perspective within the enterprise, but very much driven toward the same thing, you know, unifying this, this type of customer experience across the whole enterprise and recognizing that these are really long-term relationships that we need to be thinking of no matter what our role in the enterprise is um, in that kind of way and how we are responsible for helping to care for and maintain and build those relationships over time. Um, you, there, there are all kinds of different roles emerging, chief experience yeah. officers. I mean, it, it, it sometimes names that don't seem like they have any association with this role that seem to be taking the lead as well. Yeah. And that isn't to discount people that are already enrolled. I think, you know, chief digital officers, certainly in a whole lot of organizations have this as a, as a primary focus. And let's not discount CMOs either, right? I mean, right, right. certainly they matter tremendously. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Oh, go ahead, Bob. Sorry. No, in my company, I, 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 when I, anytime I'm in the presence of our president of products, Brett Taylor, uh, he is intensely focused on the user experience and, and, and integration and making things seamless. So, you know, maybe not a conventional title, but I feel the president of products in my company is probably the leading champion in terms of just making sure that whatever we produce, whether it's a product or service, is there to delight customers. So yeah, so again, it, it, it's a variety of titles. Go ahead, Ray. You know, that, that's a great point. And, and as we think about experience and these modern experience management pieces, uh, it cuts across lots of different types of groups, right? It's not just uh, employees, it's not just customers, but there are linkages that are popping up. And I think you're in the middle of writing that paper. So tell us a little bit about what's going on. I am. Between EX it and might C be out by, by the beginning of next week. Um, yeah, we, we've been that. looking at, <laughs> exactly. Um, I won't make any promises for my colleagues on getting it out today. They're under enough pressure as it is. Um, no, but it is really true. I mean, and if you think about it, customer service is the, the most obvious place to look for these examples, although it's not the only one. Um, have you ever called up and gotten a customer service agent who was clearly in a bad mood? No, I mean, the chances are, I mean, all of us have been there because it happens, right? And the reality is that has a huge influence on your perception of that organization. And it absolutely influences your experience as a customer. Mm. So 
and in fact, it's interesting because this accords very much with our observations uh, at Constellation, but the academic research actually shows as well that there is a very strong correlation between employee satisfaction and experience and customer satisfaction and experience. What's interesting is it's not exactly a two-way street, right? Because yes, you know, making your customers happy is probably going to drive a, a significant degree of job satisfaction for an employee, but it's a lot easier to make that situation happen, make a customer happy when you're satisfied and engaged as an employee. You know, that might have some impact on your overall perception, but you know, you had a great customer relationship experience, but you know, you're not happy with your employer. It, it, it only accounts for so much. So we know that focusing on employees and that employee satisfaction and engagement actually has a massive impact on, on customer satisfaction as well. And if you think about it, you know, that is not limited to customer service. Certainly, depending on the type of relationship, you get that sense in the sales process for sure, right? I mean, you know, have you felt like you've been backed into the corner on a hard sell type of situation? My reaction typically is that's the point at which I pull the plug. Not going to do it. Doesn't matter how much I wanted, whatever I was in the market to buy. If I feel like I'm put under pressure on a hard sell, I'm out. Not going to do it. Um, well, hey, that's, uh, and that's interesting, you know? right? And it's interesting too, right? This extends beyond employees to other areas. Like where are you seeing that extension occur? Uh, well, you know, I would say it even goes to the finance department. If you're really going to get nuts and bolts about it, think about how sometimes the billing experience is very different than the actual customer service experience. <laughs> and yet, yeah, exactly. Get billing wrong and that's a good way to disengage customers. Uh, and that's true, you know, whether you're a person as an individual dealing with your cell phone provider or whether you're a business customer that's dealing with, you know, an outsourcing contract where you've got some real issues about, you know, how billing is matching up to the SLAs that you find the dotted line to, to receive, right? So these are things that are, I think, very, very consistent, whether you're talking about a business to consumer type of scenario or even in a business to business context as well. Are the impediments, uh, or which one of the impediments is the most uh, significant in terms of degrading the employee experience? Is it is it culture, meaning empowerment? Uh, is it is it reskilling? Is it they don't have the sufficient tools? Uh, are the metrics just wrong in that they drive uh, perhaps behavior that celebrates speed at the cost of quality service? What what are some of the factors that companies need to be mindful of if they want to? Uh, get to a point where, you know, and I've, and I've said this before, it's hard to expect customers to love a company that doesn't have the employees loving, the, loving them first. So, so yeah. what are some of the, <laughs> what sure. some of the, some of the, some of the things? Well, you know, take your pick, take your pick, Vala, because I mean, we could probably have a whole hour session on what all of those factors are. And it varies from company to company, right? You know, it's a grab bag of stuff. And what's, I think, a big challenge for organizations is, you know, arguably this is a really strategic problem, right? How highly do you value your customer relationships? How serious are you about putting that at the center of the way you define your business operations? And how much priority do you put on really investing in those relationships? And it's not necessarily about putting a lot of money into customer relationships. It's about really thinking about how you design those interactions, how you design and shape those customer experiences and how you're helping to build those relationships over the long term, right? The fundamental principle here is, do you buy into the idea that serving your customers well serves your business well, right? And not every business does, right? 
you know, we can debate how successful they're going to be over the long term, but that's really ultimately what we're talking about. Having said that, I think there are some pragmatic and, and fairly tactical things that you can do that will really help to address some of these problems. Um, you know, we talked earlier with Meyer about technology, right? And that has both a role as part of the problem, and it also has a big role as part of the solution. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this comes down to things like communication, right? I mean, if you, again, just look at, at, at contact centers, um, and this is where it matters most because you've got people trying to respond in a very timely way to customers mm -hmm. who might be live on the phone or on a, on a chat or through some other mode of communication, you've got to go through 12 different systems in order to get the appropriate answers you need to interact with a customer, like that, that's not fun. It takes a lot of time and it, it vastly expands the opportunity for error to happen, right? So things that are, you know, and we've got so many great tools at our disposal right now. I mean, I think this is what is really particularly interesting. If you can think about how you want to shape that experience for a customer and how that, or shape that experience for an employee and how that influences the customer experience, we have the tools to make that happen pretty easily, right? Between open APIs, um, service and cloud-based uh, offerings, um, low-code and no-code apps that allow you to design workflows really simply and quickly and easily. We can create environments where we're pulling together all the right information and data pieces so that individual employees can get their jobs done a lot more effectively without having to switch around and all this stuff. And at the same time, we can consolidate those communication channels with customers. We can make it a lot easier to communicate with all those other colleagues as well, who in many cases are actually in different parts of the organization. Yeah, that makes total sense. As you say all of this, I think about what Mayor said that, you know, it's, it's complicated, but we don't have to make it complex or it's complex. We don't have to make it complicated. It yep. takes a lot of, uh, and I'll, you know, it, I guess grit and grind, it makes sense to say that, to really deal with culture, talent, process, technology, and do it in a purposeful, holistic way where the customer is at the center of every decision you make. And that customer could yep. be an internal customer, and then you're, you know, paying customers and business partners and so on and so forth. Uh, I look forward to reading your report. It, it seems like it should be on the desk of every CXO. Well, I'll leave you with, a, with an example of this in the real world, just to help solidify some of the stuff. And uh, I will say, you know, one of the things that I have learned being back in the analyst gig now for a few months is how I went from zero to a platinum card on Air France in one year without trying. Um, but on that note, um, you know, I was, I was taking a flight in December from Oakland back to Long Beach, and uh, we, we hit some bad weather, and we made two attempted landings at Long Beach before diverting to Ontario, which was entertaining, to say the least. It was one of those days. And what was interesting about this was that this, about the same time, there was another Southwest flight that landed at Burbank, <clears throat> hydroplaned, and skidded into the safety area, so it skidded off the runway completely. What was particularly interesting to me, given the job that I have, is that there was a customer on that flight who tweeted about it and tweeted praise of Southwest pilots, right? Saying, hey, these pilots are awesome. They got us on the ground and they got us here safely, you know, despite having skidded off the runway, right? Because, you know, getting off the runway safely was not a foregone conclusion either. Someone else who, who this guy knew was a Twitter follower had seen it, you know, reiterated the point. Well, someone on the Southwest handle, presumably from marketing, tweeted about this in reply and said, yeah, we've got great pilots. They are uh, fantastic at, at 
serving you safely, and we look forward to welcoming you onto your next Southwest flight. Well, that's great. You know, the sentiment was awesome, <laughs> but you know, there's going to be an FAA investigation of that flight getting off the runway, so maybe not the smartest thing to do. And I am in no way criticizing Southwest here for having done it. But what's interesting is if you think about this, you think about this from a sort of customer relationship and, and an enterprise-wide view of that customer relationship, if that customer had tweeted something critical, it probably would have gone to the customer service team rather than to the marketing team. Right. And chances are they wouldn't have made a public tweet. They might have communicated with that person individually, but they would have handled something different that wouldn't necessarily have created the potential for, you know, some sort of poor relationship with the FAA or potentially putting someone at risk of having said something they shouldn't have. So the tweet was deleted, right? Wow. My point is really this. It's, it's not to criticize Southwest. I use that example because it's in the public domain. Sure. Um, and I too would, would like to tweet my praise for Southwest pilots. But the point is this. If we have a better way of thinking about what those holistic kind of customer journeys and customer experiences look like. And we have the ability to consolidate not just the communication channels with customers, but the way that we deal with those internally as enterprises, we're in a much better position to design policies and respond quickly in situations like that that are much more appropriate to whatever the context of the situation might be. That's a great example. Wow. So, well, in that case, <laughs> they're not going to do that again. <laughs> so, actually, I, I thought it <laughs> might have been not, but, but I thought it might have been you. You actually <laughs> did your own piloting, so it's feeling good. Like, whew, at least it wasn't you. So we're here with. Yeah, no, I would. Friend. I would not have been flying that day. VP <laughs> and Principal Alice at Constellation Research. You can follow her on Twitter at LN France, and more importantly, catch all her insights on her new stuff coming out on experience management, uh, thinking about what's happening on XM, what's happening on. Uh, employee experience and customer experience uh, in this world of customer understanding. Thanks a lot for being on the show. You're terrific. Thank you. Thank so you guys very much for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Ray, you've got an amazing team. Uh, every time we have a constellation analyst, I learn a ton. And uh, speaking of learning a ton, uh, this was an amazing episode, episode 138. Next week, we have Tom Siebel, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer. The legendary Tom Siebel. Legendary wow. Tom Siebel. It's, a, it's an amazing honor for us to have Tom on the show. Uh, Alden Mills, Inc. 500 CEO, Entrepreneur, CXO Advisor, Navy SEAL, and author on the show. And one of our favorite journalists, Ron Miller, TechCrunch reporter covering enterprise software and innovation as our final guest. So it's, uh, it's going to be an amazing, amazing uh, episode next week. Uh, your closing remarks, Ray. Well, it's 4 a.m. here in Singapore, so I got to figure out if I go out late for something to eat or I, uh, <laughs> I go to sleep, but uh, we'll figure it out. But I think uh, this has been awesome. Uh, another awesome show. And, uh, you know, welcome back. Welcome back to the U.S., Mala. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll be in Amsterdam next week. We'll catch up on Friday. Thanks, everyone, for watching. We'll see you next Friday. Bye, everyone. Take care.